local solutions applied everywhere, particularly business solutions, is the way that we're going to solve problems as big as climate change. Welcome to Regionomics Down Under. I'm Lee Baker, host of Regionomics Down Under, and today I'm excited to be talking to Darcy Small from Kua Coffee about this fascinating social enterprise. He's starting, I'm assuming, with a team, but I'll get Darcy to tell you all about that. So welcome, Darcy. Thanks, Lee. It's great to be here. Begin at the beginning. Where did Kua Coffee start? (laughs) Yeah, it's nearly four, five years ago now. I was in my second last year at university. I went to uni at UNSW in Sydney and they became quite interested in, I guess, global student opportunities. So I was one of 10 engineering students that found myself on a smallholders farm in northern rural Uganda, spending my summer holidays there. The idea was that us as engineering students, we'd have problem-solving skills that could help transition smallholder farmers to the cash economy. But when we actually landed, we realized that our experience growing up, I grew up in a coastal town of Crescent Head and then had moved to Sydney. And that background, despite the engineering skills, didn't really prepare me to problem-solve in Uganda. We spent most of the time I guess working is very expensive, manual farm labourers, and talking with the local students that we met about how we were actually going to create an impact on the ground. And one of the students that we met was called Daniel Okanong, and he'd grown up in Mount Elgon, which is Uganda's beautiful coffee-growing region. And we formed a friendship over coffee, talking about the Sydney coffee experience of almond lattes and bearded baristas, and compared that to his experience growing up in the farming community. And we realized that those two stories were quite disconnected. And I think that was where the idea sparked to create a company that could connect the stories of growers and drinkers. And we really became interested in making it real when Daniel explained to us that he wasn't going to continue this tradition of coffee farming, which had been passed down for generations, because with climate change and exploitative supply chains, it wasn't a sustainable livelihood anymore. And that was why he had gone to university. So after that trip, a friend and I, Brody, we smuggled a sample of coffee back in our backpacks to Sydney. We had it tasted by Single Origin, which is a great little cafe in Surrey Hills. They told us that we'd landed on some specialty beans and we went from that. So internally, our purpose is to scale and share a model for climate positive coffee. And one of the really important aspects of that, and I guess the aspect that we started on is ethical sourcing. So after that first trip, We returned a year later once we'd validated that we could produce a coffee product to work out who we should buy from and the manner in which we should buy. There's a lot of certification processes. So that was our starting point, looking at fair trade, Rainforest Alliance certification. We were also interested in forming direct relationships on the ground. And it's something that we keep evaluating as we grow as a company, how best to source The first aspect of a climate positive coffee company is to source through a traceable supply chain, paying at fair trade prices or above, and making sure the farmers are paid for the quality of the coffee when they hand it over to the mill. Then there's three other aspects, which I can go into if you like as well. Yes, please. Once we get that coffee, we bring it to Sydney, we roast it. 
We then deliver it primarily to workplaces, but we're also working with homes as of last year. The coffee industry is extremely wasteful. So for every 10 cups of coffee that we consume in Sydney, nine of the waste of those cups goes to landfill in the form of spent coffee grants. So our business, when we deliver to workplaces, we actually collect the spent coffee grounds, which are a beautiful fertilizer for local community gardens. So that's the second aspect is minimizing waste and carbon emissions. Third aspect, profits go back to Uganda to build climate resilience. And fourth aspect is we measure, reduce and offset our carbon emissions at 200%. That's not just a tick box, is it? And you're, I believe, a social enterprise. Explain a little bit about that. That probably comes back to, and I need to shorten that explanation because for a consumer it needs to make sense and they need to be able to understand, I guess, why this coffee might be a little bit different to the coffee that they're normally drinking. But a social enterprise captures probably the key differentiating factor, which is the reason we exist is to support farmers in the context of climate change. And we do that by reinvesting 100% of our profits in the regions where the coffee is grown. When we had our introductory talk, we were talking about reforestation. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful area to be working in. Coffee is often a monocrop. So when coffee became popularized around the world, farmers were incentivized by quantity rather than quality. And whole mountains were just scrapped of native trees and planted with coffee bushes. And particularly with kind of erratic cycles of rain and drought due to climate change, this is meaning that when unexpected weather events happen, a lot of the topsoil gets washed away and farms aren't able to cope and it's not good for the natural environment. So part of our profits go to planting native trees in amongst the coffee bushes and reforesting the areas where they're farming within. As I understand it, there's a growing body of evidence that forests actually create rain by their nature. So there's this whole exciting area of, yeah, this is nature. It's not a machine. Everything connects to everything connects to everything. Absolutely. I think one of the positive sides of it is the concept of reforestation or of rewilding is something that a lot of consumers can get. They can imagine what's happening in those impact areas. So when they're voting with their wallets, if companies are able to put that within their supply chain, there is some potential to fund projects like that. You've got an increasing evidence base of the importance of agroforestry and the importance of reforestation and afforestation. If Kua is in there doing reforestation and supporting the local population, creating financial independence which enables the kids to be educated to secondary level which has the role on of making them better at whatever they do including their farming then there's lots of benefits there tell me a bit more about how the Australian end of the operation works what actually happens we are unique as a closed loop coffee provider. So what that means is when we deliver to workplaces in Sydney, we don't use any single use packaging at all. Our warehouse is stacked with big blue drums and we deliver to workplaces on a Thursday. Fresh coffee in a bucket, give them an empty bucket for them to put their waste coffee in and then we collect that the following week and then that goes to community gardens. 
So we drive a van around the city. Hopefully when we're big enough, we'll be able to afford for that van to be electric. We treat not only the coffee as a product, but also the waste as a product. It's a high potential raw material in a lot of ways. Yeah, we've played around with body scrubs and mushrooms as well. Gunter Pauli wrote a book called The Blue Economy. He talks about coffee grounds not only growing mushrooms on, apparently mushrooms love coffee just as much as we humans. Yeah, <laughs> it it yeah, kicks yeah, their yeah. productivity up. But also it's apparently good as odour protection, so they're putting it in the soles of shoes and in sports clothes and things like that. Yes, I know. When we started, we were very, very excited about that end of our supply chain and all the cool things you can do with coffee grounds. And we're trying to build soap and then launch a coffee product and then expand and move to new countries. And we realized that we really needed to focus on the start of our supply chain rather than the end. But it's still very much a dream of ours to do more with the end product. I can well imagine that there's lots of potential. But in the meantime, creating a firm foundation is really key. So you've explained delivery to businesses. You also said you were selling to households. So how does that work? So we use Sendals, carbon neutral logistics, but I guess in terms of the waste side of our home delivery, it's on the consumer to compost their coffee grounds. Our packaging had, a, I think, the three things that we were doing that was good and then an empty checkbox for the consumer to check and the way to the compost bin. But if you live in an urban area and don't have compost yourself, there's options like share waste out there as well. So lots of different ways to reuse it thoughtfully. For us, working with home consumers, education is a big part of what we do. Two cups of coffee look very similar unless the company takes the time to explain what's going on behind the scenes. What markets are you in at the moment? You said you were Sydney-based. Yeah, I'd say probably 70% of our volume is in Sydney, but we have workplaces in all of the other capital cities as well. Our biggest contract is with PwC, so that was really exciting for us. Late last year, all their sites came on, and then we also work with an amazing co-working space called The Commons, so we're in all of their sites in Melbourne as well. You're listening to Regionomics Down Under. Can you paint a bit more of a picture about what's happening at the other end when those profits go back to Uganda? What sorts of things are people doing that they couldn't do before? I think one of the big learnings that we had in that first university trip is that it doesn't really make sense for someone like me to decide where the profits go. So what we do both in terms of sourcing and redistribution of profits is partner with a local organisation. So on the profit end of things, we work with an organisation called EcoTrust. They have operations in Mount Elgon, where our coffee comes from. And they work with local farmer mobilizers who are like community leaders to help people who own small farms, so about 0.5 to 1 hectares of land, work out how they're going to regenerate or reforest in amongst their coffee plantations. And that looks like workshops where they learn about the different benefits of different types of trees. Maybe it's fertilizer, maybe it's fruit, maybe it's shade. And then they create a land use plan and then Kura effectively pays them to implement that land use plan over the next 10 to 25 years, which is the lifetime of the trees as well. And then EcoTrust then goes on and measures the carbon emissions avoided as part of that plan. So there's validation and measurement happening in Uganda. 
a portion of our profits also goes to EcoTrust for the measurement and data collection side of that project as well. It's probably as important to support them as it is to support the farmers because without that measurement process and that collaboration process, then you're not going to have something that's sustainable. Charities are radically hamstrung by how little they can put into administration before they're labelled as exploitative. Yeah, and our experience as a charity as well, we understand how infrequently grants come with monitoring and evaluation expenditure as part of the approved budget. But if you don't know that your program is working from a social or environmental perspective, then it's a much bigger waste of money than the spend that we apply to data collection. Do you have a sense of what are the things that enable the development of KUA? Relationships, curiosity, an idea whose time has come. How long has the journey been now? We launched in 2019. This is going into our fourth year of operations. Two of those were slowed down by COVID, so maybe we'll call it year three. In a way, the time for the idea is right. Businesses in particular are really looking at how to improve their own environmental and social responsibility. Coffee isn't a very deep way to do that, but at least it is representative of that company's values. So we've had very productive conversations with new sustainability managers or circular economy managers or even community managers in workplaces. But the other big enabler for us is our team. So you mentioned at the start that I'm just one of the founders. Originally in 2019, our first year, six of us all either just finishing uni or recently graduated, moved into a share house together and worked for a year on Kua unpaid. So I think it was that youthful energy that people felt drawn to and that was part of why we saw some early success as well. A year of concentrated attention from, were you all engineers or a bit of a mix? No, thankfully, two engineers, an art student, a history student, a finance student, and a design student. So there was a good mix. Four of the six are still working with us today. So despite talking about coffee over dinner every night for a year, we're still happy and, and working together. <laughs> that's a testament in itself that you're doing something that's sustainable. You've got operations covered, you've got finance covered, you've got marketing covered. <laughs> It wasn't a very wide net we were able to cast, but we did definitely select people that were able to fit mine and Brody's skills gaps. What next, do you think? If we had another call in, say, two years' time and amazing things had happened, what would you dream? Yes, we currently are a charity. We started as a 100% not-for-profit because we wanted to create an engine that gave profits back to Uganda. But during many months of lockdowns and team strategy discussions, we realized that being a charity was limiting our potential to grow. So we're in the process of transitioning to a social enterprise, I guess, in more of the by definition sense. So our charity will own 50% of a for-profit company. That allows us to raise money, which then allows us to spend more on product development and marketing ultimately grow and then ultimately give more profits back to the charity. So that's very exciting. And then... There's also product development. So, Lee, I'll ask you, because we're in the middle of customer research as well, what your coffee drinking habits are. One cup of very good coffee each morning from a local roaster, then the occasional cup of coffee out during the day. 
on the basis of which cafe had we walked past and we smelt the coffee. You probably fall within our current target audience, which is people that do enjoy specialty coffee, have the time to make it at home and want to buy it from a local specialty roaster. But did you or do you ever have instant coffee in the cupboard? Only for a couple of older family members who think that is coffee. (laughs) Yeah, and thats I think that's the perception of most people in the coffee world is that instant isn't coffee. But 43% of the coffee manufactured in Australia is instant coffee. It also, because there isn't that high expectation from consumers on quality, It's also not great for the farmers. So that's a traditional commodity product. They're paid low prices and there's definitely no profits being reinvested in techniques to build climate resilience. So we are very interested in whether there's a market for an instant coffee product that delivers impact in the regions that that coffee is grown. So that's probably the most exciting thing that we're working on in terms of product development, but it's very much still in that research phase where we're learning what the customers who drink instant like and what they care about. It's a really interesting question. I didn't even realise that Australia made instant coffee, but I suppose it makes sense. So there's Bushels, or I think Robert Tins. I might have got that wrong, (laughs) and then Nescafe. But I think that's also one of the reasons that your specialty roasters haven't got involved in the instant space is because of that barrier to entry. It does take significant investment in technology, one that we're weighing up. But again, the transition to a hybrid profit model would allow us to maybe invest in the manufacturing capabilities there too. In industry, profit isn't a dirty word. It's what makes you sustainable. Yeah, what you do with that profit is up to you. But if you're not making a profit, then you don't have a sustainable operation. And the whole trigger for the decision was we needed to raise about $300,000 to pay for a shipping container of coffee to come over as we're growing. And we're trying to do that through philanthropy. And we just realized that doing that year on year wasn't a sustainable business and philanthropy has its purpose in the charity space, but a social enterprise shouldn't really rely on philanthropy to grow. And through a change of structures, we were able to become more of a sustainable entity ourselves. I might have said this to you previously, but the idea that it's up to charity to do good is just so 20th century. 100%. It's stuck back in the 1960s and it's well overdue for an upgrade and I think that upgrade is starting to happen. Some resources I can share with you as to how that works. It's really interesting to have actually been working through a time where it was all about profit to now being in conversations where really big businesses are just going, hang on, no ecosystem, no community, uh, no customers. Hmm. Is that the Friedman approach versus the stakeholder approach to running a business? I like Michael Porter's shared value. He's got a really good video about why business should have a social conscience. And my personal take on it is governments struggle to do single-purpose things like vaccine distribution. Mm -hmm. To create the sustainable future, the plan is there for us from things like Project Drawdown and Project Regeneration and Circular Economy and Biomimicry, all those different threads that have been developing for 30-odd years and more form a really complex tapestry of interwoven bits. And I'm sorry, but the idea of 
our current government trying to manage that level of complexity <laughs> is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and the smartest people are working, I guess, in companies that do have a purpose. The reason that we have amazing people working for what at the surface is just a coffee company is because of the way we make decisions and I guess these resources that we draw from and the problems that we're aiming to solve. I don't know whether you studied it, but your arts person probably did was Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Late in his life, he actually went back and redid his model and added an extra level to the top of the pyramid. So he talks about self-transcendence. So after self-actualization is then self-transcendence, where you make a difference to the world around you. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read a book very early on in the sharehouse days. It was quite difficult, I guess, to navigate the traditional hierarchy of a business while being housemates. And the book, I think, was called Reinventing Organizations. And it talked a lot about working for the purpose of a company rather than working for a boss and giving people the trust that they need to make decisions on everything from the direction of their own function to their pay. And we've tried to implement that as much as possible. And it's, it's done wonders. Yeah, yeah. That goes back to the 1990s when one of my sustainability heroes, Ray Anderson, took his company on a 360-degree pivot and said, we're going to be the world's first restorative company. And what his experience wow. was that just the first 12 years of that was their business boomed. And one of the reasons that he ascribes that to is people come to us for a job and they stay because we're changing the world. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you're packing boxes or if you're driving a van or if you're doing financial statements because you can connect that to where the organisation is going. You're in business to reforest Uganda and provide a living for the Ugandan people, not just to sell coffee. And then you're going to do that in a way that deals with some climate issues at the Australian end, like food waste. Yeah, I don't think we would have survived COVID if we weren't doing more than selling coffee because when we saw those 30 or 40 companies drop to one or two for the period of lockdown, it just would have been too hard to keep going, <laughs> um, except that we're all very connected, I guess, to the problem in Uganda and the purpose of our organisation. Any thoughts on how you made it through lockdown? Is that because you targeted corporate customer base rather than cafes? Cafes probably would have been smarter. We lost 90% of revenue, so we were lucky in that we weren't paying ourselves very much and the way that the JobKeeper stimulus package was structured for the first lockdown meant that we were able to continue working as a team despite the lack of business operations. And I'd say with Omicron, it almost feels like we're in our third lockdown as a business now, but it's really come back to team culture using lockdown as an opportunity to reevaluate where we're at and where we're going. And it's only out of lockdown that we've been able to make these decisions about our corporate structure and our big vision goals. And that's ultimately fueled our motivation and meant that when we do come back into operations, we're ready and excited about it. Just a random question to get it out of my brain. Would you consider making instant coffee in Uganda? As in putting the manufacturing facilities in the country of origin? Absolutely. And I think it's one of the ways that coffee companies can do more impact is by pushing the value creation up the supply chain. So the reason that we don't do that now is because coffee needs to be delivered within four days of it being roasted. So it would require air freighting from Uganda. 
but with instant you can actually store it for two years so you could produce it in big lots and then ship it from uganda to australia it's so early in the development phase that that would be a lovely opportunity just as the other great thing about instant is all of the waste is centralized so when you produce the coffee you have piles of coffee grounds in your warehouse already which means that then the things like soap or mushrooms that we talked about become much more feasible so i think there's lots of opportunities for impact but our first step is to make sure that a customer actually wants the product <laughs> oh absolutely there's a company called i think fair chain coffee and they're from somewhere in northern europe but their whole value piece in terms of impact is roasting in the country of origin so i think they roast a lot of their coffee in ethiopia and i think that's very inspiring because it's difficult to do in terms of quality and logistics and managing an international team but it really does solve the problem of less than 10 percent of economic value staying in the country of origin and that is a real problem for the country shipping a low-cost low-skill raw material turning coffee from green colored into brown colored and then suddenly it's worth say ten dollars thirty dollars it's crazy we're an inconvenient species absolutely we're not sensible we're not logical we're not rational we just are so we've got to work with that yeah yeah definitely this show is called regenomics down under re for regenerative gen for regional and economics because this whole climate thing has got to be solved by building regenerative economies at local levels. In the spirit of that, maybe you could talk to me a little bit before we close about how that regional regenerative economies theme plays into what you're doing. Another catchphrase that I've heard of that has always stuck with me is the word glocal. And that's global solutions applied in the local context. So thinking about that for coffee, we right now are connecting Sydney and Uganda, but we're aiming to build a business model that can be shared with any number of coffee drinking cities and any number of coffee growing communities around the world. Every day, millions of growers connect to 1 billion drinkers around the world. So I think if we're going to solve problems as big as climate change, we need to share the business models that are working openly. And that's why if another company that may traditionally be perceived as a competitor said, hey, Kua, how do you do your closed loop logistics collection? That would be a success for us to share that with them. Local solutions applied everywhere, particularly business solutions, is the way that we're going to solve problems as big as climate change. That's a really good note to finish on. I think that will be my tagline. I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to share your story. I think what you're doing is regional and regenerative and the move from being a charity to being a social enterprise reflects a whole new reality. So I think you're ahead of the market. The latest research of rain creation is that it's often created by organic matter in the air, not by inorganic particles. So if you're regenerating forests, you've even got a hope of creating more rain in those affected regions. We live in interesting times and we're learning fascinating things about the planet. I thank you for your time today, Darcy. No, that was a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to reading a few of those sustainability heroes that you mentioned. So thanks for joining us on this episode of Regenomics Down Under. 
We hope you enjoyed hearing the story of how Kua Coffee is doing climate-positive coffee in Australia. Kua is just one of many groups of citizen entrepreneurs around the world acting today on the regenerative climate solutions that we have today. Their key impacts include agroforestry, as they support Ugandan farmers to restore forests and create livelihoods, and reduced food waste, keeping coffee grounds out of landfill and hence reducing methane emissions in Australia. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to Kua Coffee and to other regenerative business resources that we mentioned, including Michael Porter talking about shared value economics, the work Darcy mentioned on reinventing organisations, Project Drawdown stats on the impact of these evidence-based climate solutions, Project Regenerations Action List on other ways that you can support agroecology, agroforestry and tropical forests. Regenomics Down Under is brought to you by the Climactic Collective, a podcast network that's by and for Australia's climate community. My name is Lee Baker and I've been your host today. I'd love to hear your feedback, especially any stories that you have on the climate solutions happening on the ground in your region. Give the show a rating and review, which we'd really appreciate, on your podcast app or from our website at climactic.fm. Or follow us on Podchaser, which is the IMDb for podcasts. Regionomics Down Under is an ongoing series about the happening climate solutions that you could be part of. So if you enjoyed this episode, then follow the show. There's a wealth of other climate content at the Climactic.fm website, or you can find and follow the collective on social media, where we are at Climactic Show. Here's to making the 2020s a decade of powerful, exciting action on the climate solutions that we have at all levels. <music>